the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hi and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Cropcast and today we're going to be talking in quite depth about Ramillaria which is you know a particular problem in our barley crops. So I'm Fiona Burnett so I'm Head of Knowledge Exchange and Impact at Scotland's Rural College and with me today I've got Neil Havis who leads the Crop Soil and Carbon Group there and is um, not to Louis trumpet for him, but an acknowledged expert in Ramularia. So I know we've joked, Neil, we could talk for hours about this subject, but it's a complex disease. People are struggling to manage it. And, you know, obviously spring barley crops this year were particularly affected. So can you just tell us a little bit about the symptoms and why it's so problematic in our barley crops? Okay, thanks, Fiona. So, so yeah, so it was always very difficult to distinguish Ramularia from some of the other diseases. And we know we've discussed many times that barley is, gets lots of blotches and unknown symptoms and people struggle and say, what is it? So we kind of developed these five rules to differentiate Ramularia leaf spot from the other diseases. So they're called the five R's. So you're looking for a reddish brown coloration to the spot. You're looking for a rectangular spot on the leaf. You're looking for a ring of chlorosis around uh, the lesion. You're looking for it to be restricted by the veins. So that's characteristic for Ramularia. And you're looking for it to be right through. So if you go and look at the leaf and you see a small, the small square spots and you turn the leaf over, you'll see exactly the same on the other side. And that, if you use these five rules in combination, that will help differentiate Ramularia from the other diseases that we see. So things like Mildew can leave dark lesions on the upper leaf, but you turn it over, you don't go right through. Net blotch can go right through, but it won't stay as the small rectangular spots. They'll elongate up up the leaf. So you use these in combination to try and differentiate Ramularia from other diseases. So why it's a big issue in spring barley, of course, is because it's the late season disease. It's usually you see symptoms after flowering and it's after your any intervention point. So that's what makes it challenging. How do we control something which we can't see? Uh, not like the other splashbone diseases such as Rhynchosporium and Balu, which you see moving up the canopy. You don't see Ramularia and it will suddenly appear. So that's the challenge in how we try and manage it going forward. And it's just that straightforward loss of green leaf area that then goes on to hammer yields and yep. produce quality. Yeah, so we've just had a research student finish her uh, PhD. Because we know Ramularia grows as an endophyte within the barley plant, there was a lot of discussion and questions about whether the presence of Ramularia actually affected the potential yield. She looked at all the impact of the Ramularia without any symptoms and looked at it later on in the growing season. And the conclusion from her PhD is that it's the loss of green leaf area late in the season, the loss of assimilate, which is going into filigree, which actually affects the yield. There's no, nothing negative or no um, deleterious effects to the crop yield based on having asymptomatic infection with Ramularia. Yeah, so you're starting to hint about its complex life cycle there. So an endophyte, obviously something growing almost undetected within the, the barley plants, but 
it seems to have evolved every trick in the book to hang on. So do you want to say a little bit about its life cycle? Because it is so complex. It, it, do, it does. So, yes, yeah, so one of the main mysteries, and you'll remember back, we won't say how many years ago we first started looking at it, was this mystery disease that popped up at the top of a crop canopy with no visible symptoms below, and we couldn't understand where it was coming from, were the masses of spores coming in to the crop. With the development of molecular techniques, we were able to actually prove that the, the fungus is present in the seed, and it's quite intimately associated in the seed. It's not like Rhynchosporium on the seed coat. It's, it's deep within the seed, so it's more like Eustilago, the loose smut fungus, so it's, it's actually in the embryo of the seed. So it's deep within the seed, so that makes seed treatments harder to control the movement of the, the fungus. It will grow within the plant asymptomatically. We can use these molecular techniques to track its movement up the developing crop into the upper canopy. And then when the crop goes past flowering and the whole physiology of the plant changes, we start to see the symptoms appear. You can get spores released. You'll see sporulation and many growers can look late in the season. If you look on the underside of the leaf, you can see rows of white uh, canidiophores coming out of the stomata. These produce spores. There is some evidence that you can get movement from winter barley crops to spring barley crops. But when we've looked at it over a number of years and tracked the movement, you can see the fungus moving up the crop and, and then before the symptoms appear, before you start to see any spore movement. So our research seems to indicate that the primarily inoculation for amularia comes from the seed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just seems such a sneaky way to get in to a plant and then hang on. And it's interesting. I mean, you're, you know, as you say, it's not that damaging until that trigger at the end where it yep. shows the spots. Mm -hmm. So that's such a signalling bit between the host plant and ramularia. I mean, that's obviously something you're working on now. That's that's right. There's, we'll, there's so much interest. We've just completed a project funded by the Danish government, funnily enough, with researchers in Denmark, looking at this whole interaction down to the molecular level to see what changes take place when you have the fungus and the host, when you actually inoculate ramulae onto the host and look at the changes, changes in transport systems, changes in a lot of the molecular strategies, the defense responses in the host plant, but also in the fungus. So it's, it's fascinating. We're just at the very start of trying to understand this relationship and the changes down to the molecular level. So hope, we're hoping that this kind of enhanced knowledge will help in designing crop protection strategies. It may even give us leads on potential fungicides to develop in, in the future as well. But it, you're right, it's a fascinating lifestyle. And what's even more remarkable for Ramularia is it's a fungus which will infect many different plant species, including wheat, oats, and the grasses. But you'd only see the symptoms in barley. So there's a question mark about have we uh, inadvertently bred barley crops to be more susceptible to ramularia? Mm -hmm. Yes, if they just didn't react as badly, the damage would mm -hmm. be nowhere near as, yeah. as severe. And obviously, I mean, you can say a little bit about, you know, how it panned out in the spring barleys and winter barleys this season. So we saw quite distinct differences. So the winter barley crops, most of the sites, you remember... Last year, we had an eight-week dry period, and we thought we won't see that again. Well, we didn't. We saw a four-week dry period. And 
as I said, we're, we're looking at a, a fungus which is growing within a host plant and it doesn't actually invade the plant cells. It's relying on having moisture present in the leaves. With that dry spell, just check the growth in the winter barley. So it meant the movement up the crop was delayed. But with the spring barley crops, it was much wetter, it was warmer. The fungus was able to keep up and grow, which means we saw a lot more ramulae in the spring barley crops and the winter barley crops this year. And I think that was probably reflected all around the country. It's probably, I think, the most most reports of ramulae we had since 2017. You remember we went down the cereals event and we were bombarded with questions and queries about ramularia, not just from growers in Scotland, but from all around the UK. Yeah, and it's that sort of good season, bad season that makes it so hard for us and growers to know how to, to manage the problem. If it was consistent every year, at least we would know where we were. Absolutely. But if you, you go back, I mean, as pathologists, we always talk about the famous disease triangle. You need you need the presence of the pathogen, the susceptible host, and the right environmental conditions. And probably ramularia, of all the major diseases we have, is the one that really is at the mercy, I won't say at the mercy, of, but driven by the environment. So if the environmental conditions are not right, we just won't see it in a particular season. So mm-hmm. again, that in developing or thinking about a risk strategy and risk management going forward, it's going to require more research on our side to try and understand the drivers of this uh, movement of the pathogen. And Mm -hmm. there's already discussion with colleagues in other countries about looking at things such as soil moisture and water movement and water availability at critical growing periods in the crop. But how we then incorporate some level of forecasting for the, the weather as well. You'll see now there's a lot of interest in detecting pathogen movement and down to the molecular level, there are new companies coming to the fore. They have fast throughput, you can detect pathogen levels and that would be a useful tool for farmers and growers in managing their crops. But still, you'll need an element of weather forecasting to try and aid and build into your management decisions. So that's going to be a challenge for us researchers going forward to try and incorporate these new technologies with a, a level of our understanding of the host pathogen interactions and with a degree of forecasting to help farmers have a better risk management scheme going forward. Yeah, no, and you're so right. I mean, it will work well for some diseases where knowing it's there will yep. change your management practice. But for something like ramularia, I mean, what you're saying is always there. Yep. And then it's the weather that's the driver. Yeah, this 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 is what makes it more of a challenge. It, it's, it's, it's no... We can always find it, uh, and even in some of the other work we did, we were looking to try and eliminate levels in seed, and you can reduce levels in seed significantly, but then when you put it out in the field and allow a whole growing uh, period, levels the fungus can recover and levels can come back up. So that makes seed treatment more of a challenge because the capacity for recovering from the fungus but you're right, it's, it's all very well seeing the, the pathogens there. But will it be an issue? Well, we can't control the weather. We'll have to use that forecasting and say, okay, the likelihood is it's the weather conditions are going to be conducive to help it move. And then you, we've kind of touched on it as well. The important part of filling in a barley crop, of course, is the first few weeks after flowering. And if we can hold back the ramularia symptoms or the ramularia symptoms don't appear until after that, 
Remember, barley, barley yields is set early on. It's not like wheat. You don't have to keep the top three leaves level for as, as long as possible. So the potential barley yield is, is set early on by the potential grain size. So if you can keep the leaves uh, green long enough to fill those grains, and then if ramularia comes in after that or much later in the season, then it won't have a significant effect on yield. And that's, funnily enough, that's some of the reports we had when we were doing research in it. But the growers on Ireland would would come back and say in 2001 in really high levels of ramularia, but nearly record yields. And again, we've, we've heard from growers this year that they've seen ramularia, but they've still had pretty good yields. So some of them have been lucky that, that when the symptoms have appeared, it's been too late to have a significant It's been late enough, yeah. But you okay. can't guarantee that every year. Mm-hmm. No, so in a way that's encouraging in terms of what we're asking of fungicides. We're only looking to push back that infection or those symptoms by a couple of weeks. It's not like we're asking it to keep it clean for months at a time. And and that's probably good. As as you know, obviously, growing in Scotland, we have the the dual challenge of controlling disease, but we also don't want a crop that's going to be green going into September and heading past that. We all remember a few years back when the crops were still almost green in October. So we don't want later and later crops because... It's the end of September and it's raining now and you think, I'm so glad the harvest is done because if anything that's still out in the field just now would be in trouble. Yeah, it's the Goldilocks green, not too much and not too little. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that, we used to think about kind of stresses late in the season that again sort of seem to exacerbate the, the spots, but, you know, blast of sunshine and so on or, or areas where maybe the crop is softer, was any of that evident? I know that, for example, there was a bit of chat about symptoms under trees, which are absolutely not related to the trees, but no, could be softer growth. Or there's, there's been a lot of discussions, a lot of ideas being advanced. Uh, some of them don't have any science behind them to actually confer that. So you mentioned the, the tree pollen being one of them. There's no evidence at all that pollen has anything to do with ramularia infection. It is a fungus which is inside the plant, so... The tree pollen being on the outside of the leaf is going to have no effect on it at all. The major stresses that we've found can influence ramulated infection have been drought and waterlogging, and you mentioned the light stress. So the evidence is that the rapid change from cloudy conditions to bright sunlight in the same way that our our bodies don't respond well to rapid changes of in light, neither does the plant. And if the oxidative system in the plant is not able to cope with that, it can produce something called free radicals, they can damage the cells and the ramularia picks up on the cells being damaged and that will accelerate them, the producing of toxins and the formation of symptoms. But the drought stress is something I guess we'll be looking at going forward is going to potentially be an issue. We mentioned waterlogging. We saw it in 2012 at our trial sites at one waterlogged site. We saw symptoms before flowering and that's very unusual for Scotland. A few years back, there was quite a few reports coming down from England and Wales and other countries saying they were seeing symptoms pre-flowering. We always tend to take them with a pinch of salt, shall we say. We like to see samples. We like to actually see it for ourselves. As I said, we said at the start of the CropCast, there's lots of other diseases which can be mistaken. There's lots of other symptoms which appear. So don't always immediately assume it's ramularia. My rule of thumb is if it's pre-flowering in the crop, you 
you have to have a good look and rule out all the other potential possibles as well. But those are the major stresses. And again, as I said before, the stress is at a point at which you can't really uh, intervene or, or spray anything. So you just have to take it as, as it comes. Manage your crop well up until that point and hope it's sufficiently robust enough to fight off or not be affected too much by the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And some of those stresses, I mean, obviously we know parts of Germany, for example, with high temperatures have particular issues. So how did it play out over the rest of Europe this year? So what what we see and what we've seen when in previous years, the same as previous years, is the high temperatures, all of the all of these factors do is accelerate senescence in the host plant. So what happens is on the research side, if you're looking for symptoms, you get rapid senescence development. So if you're trying to take a snapshot of bramularia, you can have symptoms coming in fast and they can come literally in days but then within another week the crop is senesced completely so that tends to have like we said before if it's not too early in the crop it won't have such a significant effect on yield but i I think we've seen across most of europe this year that ramularia has been an issue so again it's coming to the fore and there's questions being asked Uh, we saw this in ireland as well they didn't have so much a problem with winter barley but spring barley it's it's a big issue. You mentioned Germany. That's the example we always look to in southern Germany. It dramatically comes fast and it can come very rapidly, but on a on a stressed, uh, rapidly senescent crop. Whereas in Scotland, in a normal year, we would have two or three weeks post flowering, and symptoms start to appear and they can start affecting yield. And we've talked now around some of those sort of drivers of ramularia, so really strongly weather-driven. And we obviously had the hope that there would be a good risk prediction system for growers. And life is never that simple. Um, and we thought leaf wetness is clearly part of what you're you're talking about here. But, you know, where is the work with building a risk assessment and, you know, putting all these known stresses together into that ability to say this is going to be a year where we need to worry. Yeah, so as, as you said, we did a lot of work and we looked at leaf wetness primarily at stem extension. And within a season, it will give you a good feel for which potential site is wetter than the others, what sites are more likely to get ramularia. But when you look across years and you're trying to build something, a mathematical model, the relationship was, becomes much more loose. So it was it was felt that that single parameter was not enough. So as I said before, we're starting to look at other things and looking again at water and moisture availability to the crop, just longer than that two week period of stem extension, but looking at the water relations for the crop around about a two month period from just before first node appearance till um, almost flag leaf occurrence. So we're looking at that, as I say, we're working with colleagues in other countries, exploring some of the historical data we have to see if we can come up with a a better risk uh, forecast. You mentioned some of the other stresses. We know that some of the stresses post-flowering can have an effect on it, such as light stress. We're not focusing as much on that because to all intents and purposes, you can't do anything about that. Anyway, it's too late to treat. But if we can get something, our risk management's system and a risk forecast especially up to growth stage 39 which we know the late the t2 application for barley is the one that controls ramulator 
if we can give some advice to growers around about that time, that will helpfully help them tailor their inputs to get better control of ramularia, uh, a more targeted approach rather than relying on the prophylactic where you need to put a, a full dose on or you need to put a, a heavy fungicide input when in some years there may, no, may be no benefit for going down that route. Yes, yeah, so that fungicide treatment, at, you know, usually you know, you're advising it booting um, up to mm-hmm. early year emergence before that stressful yeah. flowering period. So, yeah, fungicides have really been a, a key tool and a big saver um, in the, the Ramularia spring barley context. So anything interesting in the trials this year that we can get excited about? <laughs> So we have been doing some some work funded by means of Lauriston, looking at different alternatives, looking at things such as biostimulants. None of them give significant control in terms of ramularia. Um, we had another trial which focused more on the, the fungicides and what's come through. Funnily enough, you're allowed to put use. We're, we have the luxury of using chlorothalonil still in, in research projects. Nothing comes close to matching chlorothalonil in terms of its efficacy. What we have seen quite interestingly is some of the combinations of um, some of the azole chemistry plus multi-sites have done as well as some of the newer azole fungicides in trials this year. So that's going to be interesting going forward. There's a lot of discussion about the use of multi-sites. You know, what efficacy. These were in trials where where there was two applications of the multi-sites and it seems to be that is far more effective in terms of disease control than a single site. I know we've discussed this in the past and we've gone back to look at the fungicide performance curves. And as a single application, none of them looked as particularly as promising as the other fungicides available to farmers. Certainly not a patch on CTL, but it seems to be in the programs we've looked at this year, there are pretty good controls coming from these azole plus multi-site combinations applied twice. And that probably matches what's seen in Europe, having been in discussions with colleagues across Europe um, earlier on in the year. That's that, that's results, that's consistent, that's been seen in countries all across Europe. That's really interesting. So by multi-site, you're talking about full pit? Uh, and also sulphur. Okay. All right. So that is interesting. So both of them mm-hmm. showing something. Yep. Okay. And that that's good because we know with, with CTL that... You know, we, we've discussed this as well. There's, there's concern about the, the future of multi-sites and, and with the increased regulation and mm. environmental concerns, what is the, the long-term future for all of the multi-sites? So certainly seeing something from Fulpit this year and something from the sulphur as well, which is promising because it gives us options. As, a, as researchers and people who give advice or give advice to farmers and growers, you, you want to have options. It's, it's a challenging time for disease control with so many fungicides going, so to have options is always good. And the fact we've still got two potential multi-site options is, is very good for us and good for growers as well. Yeah, no, and that's moving thinking on because, I mean, obviously, ramularia and its background, one of its other unpleasant traits is that ability to develop resistance. So, you know, historically, we know it broke MBCs, it's broken strobilurins, mm-hmm. it's broken SDHIs, we've issues with the azoles, and then yep. you alluded there to the loss of chlorothalonil, which is no longer available mm-hmm. um, or approved. 
So that feeling that we were then down to easels as the only option, yeah. that's never a good place. No, it, it, it's good. That, and so we have the easels. Uh, you're right. There's a big question mark, given its track record and being um, highly capable of mutations to overcome fungicides. We've got the QII fungicides, which aren't far away in terms of their use on barley crops. So how we protect and manage them is going to be an issue because obviously on a part of the resistance management strategy is to have equally strong partners so that the, the, the burden's not being shouldered by one in particular. So if we've got options for different partners for the QII fungicides, that's, that's going to be really important going forward as well. Yeah, because again, the, one of the appeals of multi-sites is that they're at lower risk of developing resistance. But something like the QIIs, we already know, will be yeah. at quite high risk. So they need protection. So again, you think to put them out there without support is to think, well, you'll yeah. get a season, a couple of seasons. Absolutely. absolutely. And as you, as you mentioned there, the strobilune fungicides, I think Ramularia took four, maybe four years before we started to see big issues and the research which has gone to look for those mutations and track so from 2001 onwards that we started to see issues coming to the fore. So we want to manage any new fungicide groups as well as we can and also any other new products which come through, you know, new azoles as a question mark about whether we get new SDHIs which may have activity against Ramularia. So how we manage them effectively going forward because we don't want to be losing them in three or four years further down the line and that's there's a lot of interest in what effect how multi-sites can be incorporated and used in that resistance management strategy going forward so that's something else for us to look at but that's a kind of strange finding the multi-site results from this year where mm. we know testing them individually they weren't that effective and you alluded earlier to kind of using balanced mixtures so you put mm -hmm. two things that you know work separately yeah. together and you get a sort of happy blend and a good balance yep. to manage the yep. risk of resistance. So that kind of finding that they help, but we don't really understand why the multi-sites are helping is unusual in Ramularia. It is. I mean, you can sometimes see this, we see this in biology, and I'm thinking even back to my time to do my PhD, you see almost a synergy. So the, the control from two components is better than that achieved by each of them individually. So there just seems to be a synergistic effect. So whether it's the fact that they're taking out different isolates of the Ramularia in the crop, the more effective. One of the advantages we always said with CTL and some of the detailed microscopy work showed it almost formed a, a film or a barrier on the surface of the leaf. So there's a question mark about whether the formulations of some of these multi-sites are perhaps helping in such a similar way. So you mentioned the importance of the light stress. So if if, if these can be coated on the, the surface of leaves which have Ramularia present, but they help reduce that light stress, the production of the oxygen free radicals that damage the cells, that induce symptom formation, that's all adding to the story in terms of controlling Ramularia. Mm -hmm. So again, that, that's more work for us to do down to that level. But it shows the, the importance of not just looking at fungicide effects from active ingredients, but also considering formulation and other other properties and other compounds which are put into formulated fungicides, which may help control mm -hmm. ramularia as well. 
Yeah, that kind of makes sense. If we know there's that stress interaction that triggers the symptoms, that if there was some, as well as being fungicidal, they were doing something to manage the yep. stress. And we get, and let's face it, as an end result, we don't really mind how we get there so long as we get nope. less ramularia. Yeah, I mean, as, as, as we say, we're, the farmers and growers, they're quite happy to know that ramularia is being controlled and they can leave it up to us to spend a few years digging about and actually highlighting what, what part is contributing to mm -hmm. the best control. That's really interesting. Um, obviously, one of the great hopes is that eventually we would have you know, varieties of barley that were more resilient to, to ramularia, if not overtly resistant. So that's clearly a long game, but any progress on that front? It's a long game, but it's, it's becoming more of a hot topic and more of an interest. So we'll have one student who's looking at that at the moment, and she's just completed her first year of field trials. And she is seeing some differences because she's looking at a wider genetic material than probably we have on the recommended list. One of the concerns about ramulary resistance is that if you look at barley breeding, especially spring barley breeding, we've narrowed the, the, the kind of varieties, the diversity within the varieties that we use. So because we've been focusing on, on yield and other um, parameters in terms of breeding, we've perhaps neglected control of ramularia. And it's it's really coming to the fore now with the breeders as well. So there's a lot more interest on the commercial side. And we're actually hoping to put together a project soon to get some more funding to look at this in a lot more detail. There's lots of um, new techniques that can be used to try and introduce um, potentially useful genes from older uh, genetic material into lines as rapid uh, breeding techniques that can be used. So there's a lot of ideas uh, milling around. But you're right, in the medium and the long term, and it fits ticks in the IPM control, you make the most of genetic resistance. We don't have anything even approaching moderate to good resistance in ramulary at the moment. So it's looking at material that's out there at the moment, that means looking at other countries, and in the long term, possibly even going backwards and looking further back to look at older, older lines, older genetic material to try and find some potential resistance and then incorporate that into the modern elite lines that we have available through the recommended list. Yeah, it's so easy to go down an inadvertent, you know, bottleneck in breeding. And you've, yeah. again, found that link between uh, mildew resistance in barley and ramularia. And, you yeah. know, it's not a strong link, but it's just that unfortunate association of a desirable trait. And then right. you carry in something that you don't want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... People have talked about MLO, and it's been wonders, wonders for spring barley growers to not have to mm. worry about mildew. But it's not just ramularia. But I mean, people have found it the susceptibility to the other other necrotrophic pathogens such as Rhynchosporium and net blotch has been increased. So the sacrifice of complete control of one pathogen, but the exacerbation of of disease symptoms from the other pathogens. It's that balance. So should we move away from there's a big question mark, should we move away from MLO resistance and try for something which is more resistant to mildew but not relying on MLO with better disease uh, control to the other diseases? So that's right, but of course, don't forget Ramulay is also an issue in winter barley where we don't have MLO. So we can we can point the finger at MLO to a certain extent, but there's obviously other factors going on in there. Yeah. 
as ever with Ramilleri, it's never that simple. <laughs> you know, that's been so interesting. Yeah. I mean, is there anything there in terms of kind of key actions for next year or things to think about that you'd like to see again? Or So key actions for, for farmers and, and planning their strategy going forward. We've always said to them, be, be aware of the growing conditions in your crop. We're not at the, the, the point of getting a detailed risk forecast, but be aware of the growing conditions. If we have long, dry periods, it may be possible to think about cutting back on your fungicides. Look at the fungicide performance data, which will come out from HDB this year. We've run two fungicide performance trials from them. That will give you an up-to-date uh, information on what the kind of levels of control you can get from the major fungicides to Ramularia. Keep an eye out for the, the trial results, which SRUC will publish through the winter roadshows that we'll have online, but also physical events as well because we'll also be presenting some of these results I've touched on from the Mains of Lauriston projects. So just just keep your eye out for what's out there and, and keep one eye on, on the weather and hope for a decent summer, but not too wet, I guess is the obvious answer. Well, and we can almost guarantee there'll be some extreme of one kind or another next year, if not several. Absolutely. Well, it's almost getting to the point where we're trying to remember what a, a normal, whatever normal, we would talk about the new normal in terms of just how we live our lives, but what is the normal in terms of a growing season? We've, we've seen last year would be a cold, wet winter, followed by a very dry spell, followed by a warm, wet summer. Before that, we had an eight-week dry period as well. So we are, and we've been made aware of this, I guess everyone's aware that the climate is changing, the extremes are becoming more commonplace. So we just have to try and manage as best as we can and take take full advantage of the favourable uh, weather conditions that we have when we have them. So that's probably a good place to finish for a disease like Ramularia that's so stress-driven and weather-driven. A climate warning is, yes a good note to finish on. Neil, thanks so much for that. And thanks everyone for joining. Um, I hope you'll listen to other CropCasts in the series. So we'll be um, talking about um, carbon and net zero in crops, trial results from this year and soil health in upcoming CropCasts.